because if you give people the chance to succeed the first time they try something, they're more likely to try it even better the second time and third time. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Lisa Gagliani, an expert in all elements of charity, from leadership to fundraising to marketing to communications. Lisa has run or worked for all sorts of different sides of charities. You're going to enjoy our conversation. Before we dive into the show, though, whatever platform you're on, whether it's on Apple or Spotify, hit follow and ensure you get future episodes, but it'll also help me get the message out there and make more of an impact. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Lisa Gagliani, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thanks for having me. You're the CEO of Independent Arts. What's its purpose? What's its mission? Well, it's a charity. It's a small charity based where I live on the Isle of Wight. And its mission is to tackle social isolation. And it does that through arts-based activity, hence the name Independent Arts. You describe it as the best small charity you won't have heard of, which I quite liked. Thank you. Thank you. Well, when you're given a when you're given a brief which is to make a charity that when I took it over three nearly four years ago was thirty years in existence and we're a, a small island that's, you know, twenty-six miles wide and about twelve miles long or the other way around, diamond shaped island. And I couldn't believe you could have a charity that was doing so much good and helping so many people and yet nobody had ever heard of it. So hence the best small charity you've probably never heard of. And I'm doing my damnedest to make it better known here on the island. Well done you. And we'll go into your incredible for-purpose career. But um, tell us a bit more about what you do for the charity on a day-to-day basis. Well, I'm uh, I'm classic CEO of a small charity, which basically, you know, any any small charity CEOs listening to this will be nodding and saying, "Yeah, means you're head of HR, you're head of finance, you're head of fundraising, you're usually head of operations as well, and you just have to slot in and do what needs to be done on the day." Absolutely, a jack of all trades. A bit of a jack of all trades, but I I actually love it. I thrive on that, um, you know, rolling my sleeves up and and getting getting on with the job. I've had a few opportunities that I've valued in larger charities, but I always come away thinking, mm, I think my I think my um, you know my sweet spot is actually working in smaller organisations. Whether that was before, you know, I know we're going to go and talk about my career, but, you know, I started off in the private sector with a corporate career. And even there, I think I was, I started my career in a small company. And although I had, you know, some fabulous opportunities with large organizations, really, I was more comfortable in small, small companies. So small companies, small charities. And the Isle of Wight is a wonderful place, but I, I guess it almost feels like a country in itself. It is. I think some of the uh, some of some of the residents here really feel it, it really ought to be its own republic sometimes. But um, uh, yes, it's a it's a very distinctly different. I think when you're surrounded by water, even though we're only four miles from the Hampshire coast, it does have its own distinct personality and its own outlook. Yeah, because my memories are boats or sh- or um, yachting. Lots lots of um, sea, obviously. Uh, lots of boating types. 
I think I went there when there was foot and mouth disease. So there was a lot of restrictions <laughs> on where you could yeah. walk. But that, those are just some of the memories I had of the Isle of Wight. Yeah, and a lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot of kids come here as part of their year six, you know, first time away from home um, at the end of primary school. And they come to all the, you know, the famous landmarks, Carrisbrook Castle, Osborne House. They trek along um, Tennyson down to the Needles and, and uh, they get the ferry ride and the coach around the island and maybe play you know beach volleyball on the you know on on the coast at Sandown and then yeah they come back when they grow up if they have a if they have a love of sailing but I'm pleased to say and nothing to do with me really is that there that there is really a vibrant arts and cultural scene here and an emerging food scene and it's got really got something for everybody and we found since the pandemic and the staycations that really the Isle of Wight is a lot of people are moving here as, as my husband and I did seven years ago and finding that it's actually quite commutable to London. It's not as far as Cornwall and it's got an awful lot to offer. Yeah, and imagine in this modern world of, of work from home or sort of exactly. the lack of presenteeism that, that uh, it would be an attractive proposition. It, it is, it is. Um, you know, property prices, you know, are still, you know, very competitive here compared to, you know, the home counties or central London. So you get a lot of property for your money as well. That's not great for residents, of course, for people born here, because, of course, it has that property inflation effect. And that's, uh, you know, like all coastal communities, we really have to sort of watch what we do in terms of in the name of regeneration that doesn't actually make life worse for for the, um, yeah, I guess you call them indigenous population. Yeah. And we are going to go into your career history, which is fascinating. So just taking it all the way back to university, so you did a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy slash Humanities? Yes, yes. I um, my, my big drive, my big ambition when I was younger was to work in the food industry, which is hilarious because I've never worked in the food industry. But I was really keen on food, food science and nutrition. So my degree was actually in home economics. And philosophy of education was one of those things that came about. It was a dual subject degree. It was I went to Digby Stewart College, part of Roehampton University, and it had been a teacher training college. And then when it became a, a university, they did these slightly unique humanities degrees, but they were dual subject. So when I rocked up with my less than brilliant A-level grades and said, well, I want to do your home economics course, um, they said, well, that's fine, but you have to do it with another subject. And the only subject that had vacancies, which meant basically I guaranteed getting a place, was philosophy of education. And I had no idea what that was, but I signed up for it anyway. And I discovered that it was actually really interesting and complemented home economics quite well because it it, it brought in um, aspects of sociology, child psychology, child development, all things that I'm actually really interested in. So it was a, it was a very productive few years. So academia made sense to you or you were more into the sort of appliedness of it? I think it was more applied. Yeah, I think that's why I liked I liked the food subject. I like the practical side of things. I guess deep down, I suppose it's, you know, it comes back to nurturing. And I like to, I've always liked cooking. And I've realized that actually, if you are not a bad cook, you can make people around you that, that you care for very happy by feeding them. <laughs> and uh, so I think that's really where, where, it, where it all comes from. 
and much pressure from your parents to to, to be anything or to achieve, or you're driving Not, a lot of no, this up? No, 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 no. I'm the I'm the youngest of five children, and there's a big age gap between myself and my elder sister. And to be honest with you, um, and this is not to get sympathy or anything, I think my parents were bored with parenting by the time I came on, came along. And so I was, there were very, there were not just, not just low expectations, but no expectations. So as a parent uh, of four, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> bear that in mind. The last one is probably still yet to come. I just, I do describe myself as saving the best till last. And I think I say that sort of in jest. Because there were, my parents were, were um, my father was reasonably successful. He was a secondhand car salesman who did well in the 60s. He spotted the, you know, everybody will drive a car boon, um, you know, perhaps a little bit before everybody else. And he threw hundreds of thousands of pounds at our education. And yet neither of my parents expected us any of us to go to university it was apparently not the thing but of course it was not the thing in their generation but by the time I came along and was finishing school in the late 70s early 80s it definitely was the thing particularly with a with a private education to to go on to university but no my parents just you know couldn't be seen for dust and I so I kind of took charge of my education from 16 plus and um, worked it out for myself yeah, there's something possibly said in that. And so you touched it up before. So you, you ended up in, you know, kind of corporate roles, if you like. So, I, you know, health, pharmaceuticals, yeah, other roles, which, you know, quite commercial, quite pressured. Like how how, how did you end up in in that world? Well, I, uh, funnily enough, we were talk- I was talking about this with my son and his girlfriend only this weekend. I was given a, uh, whilst I was at university, I worked in a bar like a lot of students do, and a lovely couple who had their own PR agency. They were, I think they, they had their like Apple and Pear marketing board as one of their clients. And so we got chatting because they discovered I was doing a you know, a university degree about food and home economics. And so they were trying to be helpful and they very kindly offered to write me a cover letter and uh, to accompany my my first CV straight out of graduating. And um, on the back of that letter that they wrote for me, it um, I got my first job, which was with um, a small privately owned uh, health food company in Surrey called Modern Health Products and they that letter got me an interview for a job that wasn't advertised that was the whim of the managing director and he loved the idea that he could that I could understand his food science language and that really kicked off my career and it kind of felt it felt good because I was using nutrition I was using my passion for trying to and it sounds pompous now but even at 19 or 20 I had a passion for trying to help people to eat healthier, you know, more healthily. And so working for a health food brand, uh, Vicon Vegetable Stock, it was a bit like your Vegemite. And, uh, you know, I went around the country merchandising it. But that sense of purpose and it being for the greater good, like it was it had an impact on people's lives, that was like was sort of intentional 
those thoughts at the yeah. time? Well, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Um, you know, maybe not. You know, quite so so clearly as I as I as I remember it. But yes, I mean, my friends at the time, you know, used to used to jest and say, "My God, don't get Lisa on the subject of of salt or fat because you know." She'll, she'll fall for England because I was a bit of a radical. I did think that you know everyone was eating diets that were far too refined and too much, too much saturated fat and too much salt. And of course they still are. But at least now it's more. Ma- it, at least now it's more more mainstream and people understand that actually you know that um, slightly crazy nineteen year old actually knew what she was talking about. <laughs> you were practicing what you preached. Like you were you were eating. Yeah. Extremely yeah. healthily, we. Mm. I, I was trying to, yes, yeah. But like everyone, you know, the years have rolled on, and the, you know, the pounds of the pounds have piled on. So I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not the best, uh, you know, the best ambassador for healthy eating. But at least I know too many people just don't really understand what's wrong with their diet. I know exactly what's wrong with my diet. I like food too much, and I eat too yeah. much of it. Nah, me too. Um, <laughs> and so you. We talked before this podcast, but some very happy years working for the local Chamber of Commerce. So entrepreneurial yes. spirit or entrepreneurial sort of DNA? Yeah, I do I do think entrepreneurial spirit is it does come down through your up your upbringing and both of my paternal grandmother had her own business. She was a hotelier. My father had his own business. Maternal grandfather had his own business. So I think they were influences on me. And um, yeah, I I had a spell, which I think we spoke about before, where I I, um, took a job with Tupperware and got involved with direct selling, but on the marketing and branding side and product development side. And the chamber came along just after I'd had my two two boys. And um, in a complete pivot, you know, your priorities change. And I wanted a job that was close to home uh, with Tupperware. I'd had a fabulous experience sort of flying all over Europe and occasionally across the Atlantic as well for, for product development meetings and launches. But when the boys came along, I needed, you know, I didn't want to do international travel. I wanted to work locally. And the Chamber of Commerce just fit the bill. I think the experience of supporting Tupperware distributors who were, you know, uh, franchisees gave me that little bit of insight that I wouldn't otherwise have had in how to support small local businesses. So I had a very happy decade at Kingston Chamber of Commerce. Hey, I'm a child of the 70s and I am a Tupperware child. Like there was Tupperware <laughs> parties happening left, <laughs> right and center growing up. So I, I understand the, the Tupperware vibe. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was one of those things when I was when I applied for the job and then when I was offered the job to be a product manager for, for Tupperware, I, you know, I was stepping out of, you know, we made reference to pharma. I, I was working for, for Bayer Pharmaceuticals, um, running their diet brands. And I did think for a while that going into something as ordinary as Tupperware and the joke of the Tupperware parties had become a bit of a joke by the late 80s, that it would be sort of career suicide. But actually, it taught me so much about life and so much about people. And people can snigger all they like about Tupperware parties or Avon ladies or all that sort of thing. But actually, it gave it gave women, without realising it, gave gave women an opportunity and a voice at a time when they still didn't have it. 
So, um, you know, huge respect and huge affection for, for, for Tupperware. Not only a great product that's, uh, that's, that's um, you know, environmentally friendly, it literally lasts a lifetime, but also gives this great earning opportunity and this this ability for women to actually earn their own earn their own income and and create some independence and some equality. I guess. I think the the genius of it was the the network as well, like this, you know, enabling a network or a whole culture around it almost. Absolutely, absolutely, and brilliant because it built up, and it wasn't just females. There were men who sold Tupperware as well, but. It just gave women this amazing opportunity to use their charisma, to use their sales skills, to enhance their communication skills, because really that's what the success or failure was on your ability to communicate product benefits and to show the product in action. And and, and, and I guess that's what I liked about it. So over 10 years, say 11 years, working at the Kingston Chamber of Commerce. Yes. This is where our paths cross. You join... Bright Ideas Trust, which is, you know, sort of focused on young enterprise, if you like. And we we met each other through a sort of funder relationship. But tell us a bit about the reasoning behind the jump. And, I, and I, you know, it's obviously a, um, a good follow-on role for what you were doing. But tell us yeah. a bit about that move. Yeah, well, I yeah, I mean, the chamber was was amazing. You know, we had the we had the financial crash in the early nineties, and there were lots of opportunities to create new products and services, not only for members but but for local residents. And the and you you've mentioned young enterprise. I got involved with young enterprise, and I guess it was a natural for a chamber chief exec to be invited to judge the awards with local schools. And I got really interested in that. But after after a decade of working in a job that I'd only ever gone to in order to be close to my children growing up and dropping them off at school and that sort of thing, I realized that they were both at secondary school. They were both taller than me and they really didn't need me home at four o'clock. So I took some career counseling because I felt that the world had moved on and I wouldn't be able to go back to sort of mainstream marketing and product management. And the career coaching and a 360-degree analysis, you know, taking the views of former colleagues and former bosses into account, kind of laid the path for me, as you've said, taking on my first charity CEO role, which was to take over from the founder of Bright Ideas Trust, which had been set up by Tim Campbell, the winner of the Apprentice series, uh, the first series of The Apprentice, and he'd started a charity to help young people start their own businesses, their own limited companies with business mentors. And my brief was to scale it. So yeah, that was that was my jump from from the private sector into the third sector. Yeah, and that was so young people who weren't in what they call them neat, didn't they? Are not in education, employment, or training. Yeah, not in not in uh, education, employment, or training. And the idea was very simple, which was to show young people aged between eighteen and twenty five how to turn something that they're passionate in into something that they could make make money from, and giving them the tools, the the, the business planning skills, the research skills, and access to industry mentors um, who could provide those young people with the guidance and some of the benefits of having been, a, you know, in business for themselves for some time, and give them, you know, sort of even the pitch a little bit and and help those kids that hadn't had a great start in life to learn how to earn their own living. And do you think sometimes actually it was less about the enterprise than it was more about the journey? 
I think, yes, I think there were, there were an awful lot of young people who actually came to us from the Prince's Trust having seeded a, a you know a, a pilot project and it could have been you know there were lots of there were lots of t-shirt design businesses I have to say and then scaling it up and turning it into something which was sustainable so yeah it was it was the journey and I'll I remember just one small anecdote I remember soon after I joined I, I sat in on one of the sort of early stage business planning sessions typically there'd be four, six, eight young people, and uh, my colleagues would be doing, you know, putting them through their paces and teaching them how to write a business plan. And one young chap called Derek, he wanted to, uh, he'd worked for two businesses that were sort of like decluttering and, you know, those businesses that take away all your old junk and uh, recycle it. I was just so impressed with his passion. But I remember when it came to the business plan, taking it to the board, because we would invest in these in these limited companies up to £25,000. And uh, some of the trustees were a bit concerned that it was a very dodgy end of business and whether there would be, you know, rep- reputational risk and uh, but I found uh, I found deep within myself, uh, you know, my passion came to, to came to came to purpose because I I ab- advocated for for young Derek and we got him his business loan and I talked my husband into being his business mentor because he'd worked in the in the haulage business and, and the vehicles were going to be a really important part. And you know that young man is still doing well. He he employed his own father, his own brother, his own cousin. And he's still doing well. So, you know, I think yeah, we, were, we were right. Yeah, we were right to gamble on him. <laughs> it was a good bet. And first CEO role for a charity. Yes. And, you know, coming out of a long you know, corporate run, what were the big differences you experienced at the time? And, and was it a bit of a shock to the system? Like, do you remember? Yeah, it was a bit of a shock. I mean, there were two things. One was, you know, taking over from a founder who was a household name. You know, he'd opened an awful lot of doors. I'm talking about Tim Campbell here. Yeah. And he had, you know, huge charisma. And he'd been running the company, started up, I think, four years before. And I was unknown. So I found that really hard. Doors were slammed in my face almost as fast as they were had been opened for him. And it was, yes, it was, it was very difficult. The other thing, the other big difference was I'd come from, although I'd been used to reporting to a board of, board of directors at the Chamber of Commerce, the board of directors at the Chamber of Commerce were taken from the membership. So they were your most loyal customers, the people who really saw benefit from membership stepped forward to, to join the board. Whereas a, a charity board is made up of, sometimes a quite a random and eclectic bunch of people, particularly in the early days, the founder will typically invite people that they know and trust and like to join the board. And I found that culture very different and quite challenging. But, you know, like all things, a bit of perseverance and winning them over. And I had huge support, actually, from the Bright Ideas Trust. But it was difficult at the beginning. I was taken down a peg or two, shall we say. And it hurts. And it's at the commercial end of charity as well, isn't it? So it's not like you're running a sort of, you know, a service that's focused on helping people. It's It was sort of the enterprise end of, of, um, it, of it was, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, of course, the startup loan scheme 
was launched by the government. And I pitched for that because up until then, all of the funding for all the business startups had come from one of our corporate corporate supporters. And um, so this was a big opportunity. And uh, I applied, I applied to run that scheme. And uh, I'd never had any formal fundraising training either. So I wrote the bid having never really written a bid before. And not surprisingly, it was knocked back. And I was told that at the time that the reason we, we weren't going to get the, the support from startup loans was because I'd, I'd forecast that we would help 50 new businesses start up in the coming year, which I thought was pretty impressive because in the previous four years, we'd started 32 businesses. So I thought I was being hugely ambitious, but it turned out that the government scheme only wanted to work with partners who were going to literally be churning out hundreds of new businesses. But I had the last laugh because four to six months later, I got a call from people who were doing the procurement or dishing out the contracts. And I said, well, how many small businesses have you started then with the other contenders? And they said, well, not as many as we'd hoped because they're still building the infrastructure. So I said, well, you know, (laughs) we've already got the infrastructure. We've been doing this for four years. Why don't you give us another chance? And they did. And they did. And, yeah, we started 80 new businesses over the course of the the next 12 months, which was phenomenal and allowed us to scale up the organization the corporate sponsor i don't know if i can name them but it was uh, a will you can edit it out it was accenture and i went to speak to accenture and i said look i don't need your money anymore to start new businesses but i do need your financial support to scale up my staff because if i'm going to increase this volume i'm going to need more staff in order to process them and i'm going to need a lot more volunteer business mentors and i'm going to need somebody to manage them so um Fortunately for me, the gamble played off and they said, yeah, okay, convincing case. And so they they then paid into core costs, which, uh, you know, as you know, is gold dust. (laughs) So I was a very happy, very happy bunny then. Yeah, you've touched on a few things. So one is that dynamic between the CEO and the board, which is quite unique in the charity sector. The other one is it's really challenging or very difficult to you know, get full cost recovery. So yeah. cover all of your funds and, and no one wants to fund those unsexy things, do they? But, you know, keeping no, the lights nobody, on. No, nobody wants to pay for the lights to be on, probably even less now because apparently we can, we can all work totally remotely and, um, you know, therefore nobody needs a, an office anymore, apparently. And, yeah, nobody wants to pay for the staff that actually make the magic happen, which, as you know, you know, it's just is just a fantasy. And being being a CEO or being being the boss like that felt came quite naturally to you. I think so. Yes, I think um, I'm just um, maybe a naturally bossy person. <laughs> you don't, from, you know, like I remember meeting you around that time, and and I thought you you're very good at articulating the cause and the and the sort of impact you hope to have. And you didn't mind um, who you pitched that to. So you were very confident about your pitch as well. But. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, I guess, yes, I, I'm I'm a very non-hierarchical person. I don't know where I get it from. But yeah, I'm. it doesn't, it doesn't phase me to um, be talking to somebody that is in my head, you know, many, many, many rungs up the ladder. It, it, that, that doesn't phase me. So, um, and I think people... 
people like the, you know, they liked the slightly crazy sort of passion with which I, you know, choose my, choose to, to, to use to, to explain what I'm doing. And so three, three years doing that and then decision to leave and you ended up at the Childhood Trust. Like what, what was your thinking there? Well, like a lot of people, you know, life comes with its ups and downs. And I hit a bit, I hit, uh, you know, a down point in, in life. And uh, I felt that I needed to step away. And I was very fortunate that at just that time, when uh, things things were going really badly for me in my private life, that uh, the Childhood Trust came along. And it gave me an opportunity to start, almost start something from scratch, but to do it in the privacy of my own home. So the first sort of fully working remote opportunity and to help uh, a philanthropist uh, grant gordon to to realize his ambition to help alleviate child poverty in london so that was a that was a you know i'm forever grateful for that opportunity it also gave me the chance to work with the fabulous team at the big give who do the the um, world famous Chris, big give christmas challenge because that was the formula whereby Grant Gordon had decided to channel his philanthropy. So my role was to go out there and find great small charities doing brilliant work in alleviating child poverty across London and then take them on a journey to um, some of them had already been involved as say it wasn't a total startup it had been running for a year or so and I so I took over from a from an outgoing CEO and took on a small small portfolio of of charities that matched Grant's aspirations and his philanthropy ideals and then I had to go and find more of them so I spent a very happy couple of years just uh, traveling around London, going and meeting charity leaders. Some of them were volunteers. They were still at that point where there were no no staff. Um, and some of them were very small teams with, you know, trustees with very fixed ideas sometimes on, on how to fundraise. So my pitch was, it was a sort of reverse pitch. I'd go and meet a charity, see what they do. I'd sort of tick it off in my own head. Is this the sort of thing that will actually alleviate child poverty so was it for example was it a that there were there were I don't know whether I can remember the three really clear terms that we had they were either nurturing or aspirational and there was one other thing I can't remember exactly which it was now but I used to look out for charities doing these three things then go and see them if I like the people which I normally do because I do like most people that I meet I then get an idea of their fundraising collateral the number of supporters they had, the number of corporates that they might be able to ask to, to put in a pledge fund, whether their own trustees were up for giving. And then I'd leave them with a challenge and I'd say, look, tell your trustees, when is your next trustee meeting? They say, oh, it's in three weeks' time, Lisa. I said, right, well, go to them and say you've had this amazing opportunity from a mad woman that says that they will match whatever your trustees are prepared to put on the table to pledge for the Big Give Christmas mm-hmm. Challenge. Yeah. Because, you know, having first chatted about the trustees and whether any of them had the propensity to give, and then, well, do they? Because a lot of people even now think if you become a trustee, that means you're doing your thing because you're giving your time. You know, you're giving your time, you're giving your talent, but actually there's a third T, which is treasure. 
And if you really like the charity that you got under the bonnet with, then you could actually, whether it's, you know, a hundred pounds, 500 pounds, or in some cases, many thousand pounds. Um, but the thing with the big give Christmas challenge is the pledge is one thing and it can be matched with the childhood trust in this case, there's a champion funder. But if they haven't got a database of, 50 to 100 other people that they can ask during the, the challenge week to, to donate, to have their donations doubled, then the whole thing, you know, doesn't get very far, if you know what I mean. So, so, so yeah. my job was really sort of coaching them to set their fundraising target appropriately so that they could succeed. Because if you give people the chance to succeed the first time they try something, they're more likely to try it even better the second time and third time. And there are charities out there today that I like to think I had that conversation with them 10 years ago. And now they're, you know, they are regularly raising 40, 50, sometimes 60,000 pounds or more every Christmas for their much needed campaigns, um, making a huge difference to children all over London. Yeah. We had Alex Dale on, on the podcast um, not that long ago, but South, you know, sounds like a, a wonderful job and, and you know, being inter- interesting, but also connecting with all those people who would have been incredible people. But you, you said you touched on it, it was a difficult time for you personally. Did that sort of act as sort of therapy? Like it was a, it was a right job at the right time and you I managed to was. sort of... I, yeah. yeah, I think I had total control. That was the thing. I, I you know, I was, I had no staff to... Don't get me wrong. I love my staff that I have now as independent art. And I've always got on well with all my teams. But I think not having the responsibility of staff was was hugely liberating. And being in charge of my own diary and just being able to make appointments and go and see, you know, any, you know, what I realize now is any charity CEO who has the opportunity to show a potential funder about what they do those are always happy days you know there's, there's nothing negative you know you're making that person's day simply by showing an interest in what they their charity does so it was a hugely therapeutic time for me um for, for which i'm very grateful so you're there two years and it, it came to a halt a little bit sooner than you thought tell us a bit we've talked about this but tell tell us about that yeah 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 i'm still i'm still slightly uh, embarrassed about this i'm um you had deborah all tyler on a few weeks ago and she said you know she doesn't take criticism very well and all criticism is hurtful and i and i subscribed to that as well and i went into my second year appraisal with the childhood trust and i received some you know, in hindsight, it was perfectly valid, constructive criticism. But I was basically told that um, my, you know, my achievements were fantastic. My passion was hugely valued and appreciated. A few other things that I put in place, like impact evaluation was all great. But I was just waiting for the but. And the but was that I needed to tone down my passion when I was talking about the charity's work at board meetings and I just blew a fuse. I just saw red and I said, well, you know, that's part of who I am. If you don't want the passion, you don't want me. So I'll resign. And I did. And it was accepted. Because the passion, like that's a wholly positive thing, right? So everyone, especially in this, in this so. sort of full-purpose so. sector. Well, how, how can you say the one thing that is mine, that is my personality 
um, how can you say you want me to be a different person? If you want a different person, go out and hire a different person. And what, what like looking back and reflecting on that, do you think they're trying to tell you something else? I think they were just trying to tell me, you know, just tone it down a little bit, you know? And I and I could have done. And I and I I I yeah, I'm I, you know, I I do sometimes regret that I, you know, threw my toys out of the pram because I hear myself now, you know, listening sometimes to my sons when they speak. And I think, oh, yes, I know what you mean, but if you could just tone it down a little bit, you know. Is it being too direct sometimes? Like making other people, making uh, board, I'm thinking making board members uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, a few too many home truths. Some, you know, some things which should stay as a thought bubble do slip out of my mouth occasionally, shall we say. Have you changed since then? I think I've, I think I have become a little bit more mature and a little bit more diplomatic. But I hope I never use my ability to speak informally, with humour, and to be quite direct. Because I see so many people pussyfooting around using sort of artificial uh, language that doesn't really say anything. And that makes me really cross as well. So, But I am trying to, you know, compromise it a little bit. Any regrets from seeing Red and walking? Well, no, actually, no, because I used as my as my quick thinking excuse, sort of post <laughs> post apocalyptic rationale, was that I I felt that I had this once in a lifetime opportunity to start my own business, and I realised with complete clarity in that moment of madness that the thing I'd enjoyed most about the childhood trust was supporting and coaching those small charities. So I instantly invented this ambition, which I, of course I'd never had, but it just came to me in the, in, the, in the heat of the moment that I wanted to be a charity consultant. So I set up my business, Lisa Ganiani Associates, as an advisor for social good. And that gave me a sort of diplomatic way of stepping away. And it also coincided with an opportunity to consider relocating from our family home in southwest london to the isle of wight um so yeah it it it, it was a it was a very useful bridge and you'd picked up an mbe at this, by this stage uh, yeah i picked up an mbe thanks to my first charity job with um bright ideas trust so yeah that was a very unexpected you know pat on the back so yeah hugely proud moment and you know received the mbe from her majesty at windsor castle and the funny thing was, I think I told you this last time, because uh, you have a few, you know, a couple of seconds of one-to-one conversation with uh, Her Majesty, uh, the late Queen. And she, after they'd announced my cita- citation, which was for services to small businesses and young people, she said, oh, so a little bit like Charles. So there you go. I've been comp- compared to the to the current yeah. king, but you know that was a reference to the Prince's Trust and that you know, helping, business helping young people start small start small yeah. businesses. So yeah, yeah, that was a, lo- a lovely moment. And as we look towards wrapping up at the future of independent arts, where would you like to take that? Well, a year or so ago, we um, made a step change. We took over a, a, an empty shop in the High Street in Newport county town on the island and that's been transformational we deliver our arts-based workshop 
place um, and also to display the, the arts that produce, um, whether it's visual, whether we have for music type type that. And that's been really transformational. So I'm hope that, you know, that goes from strength to strength. Funding is, you know, really challenging at the moment, but we've just celebrated our fifth anniversary. We've got a new ambassador who's uh, helping to open doors for us. And um, yeah, I just want to be doing more of the same. It's a fabulous small charity, let's say best charity you've ever heard of. Um, we send musicians into care homes and we work with, with people with dementia, depression, all sorts of mental and physical um, disabilities. Um, but there really is such a thing as the healing part. So that's my thing now, seven years off retirement, and I just want to be better known and really understood and, and a blueprint really for the rest of the country. This is Gabe Gowley. Massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.